Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Oxford Martin School and uh, the penultimate seminar in our series on health challenges uh, of the 21st century and how we meet them. Uh, I'm Ian Golden, the director of the school, and it's a great pleasure today to be able to welcome two speakers uh, who will present and then we have a discussion with you around it on the topic of how do we, uh, why do we need to reconstruct uh, drug discovery, an absolutely vital subject as we think about the major challenges in drug discovery and the failure of the existing system uh, to deliver uh, what society needs, both in the advanced uh, and developing countries. So I'm delighted that we've got two people who are absolutely qualified uh, to help us think about this topic in Chaz Buntra and Javier Lazan. Chaz uh, Buntra is a professor of translational medicine in the Nuffield Department of Clinical Medicine. He's an associate member of the Department of Pharmacology uh, and chief scientist of the Structural Genomics Consortium. And if you don't know what that is, nor do I, we can ask him uh, in the Q&A. He's also a visiting professor in neuroscience and mental health at Imperial College. Um, and prior to this, he was the head of biology at GlaxoSmithKline, uh, where he was involved in the identification of more than 40 candidates for drugs. Uh, for intestinal, inflammatory, and neuropsychiatric uh, diseases, and many other attributes. Uh, Javier Lazan is uh, James Martin Lecturer in Science and Technology Governance, so he's uh, been, since its inception, uh, a full-time academic in the Oxford Martin School. He's the Deputy Director of the Institute for Science, Innovation, and Society, which is one of the groups within the Oxford Martin School. Uh, Javier's research focuses on the politics of scientific research and governance, and he directs the Bioproperty Research Program uh, on Bioproperty, Biomedical Research, and the Future of Property Rights. And again, many other uh, attributes uh, to his name. So I'm going to invite them both in turn to come and speak for about 20 minutes, and then we'll open it up to Q&A. Chaz, you have the floor. Well, ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Do you want me to stand up there? Yeah. Okay. So, good afternoon. Thank you all for coming. Um, what I'll do in the next 20 minutes or so is just share with you my perspectives about what we as patients or members of society are looking for in terms of drug discovery. What I think is some of the problems faced by the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, I'll share with you why I think we've got these problems. Uh, I'll then share with you some of the things that we're doing, which I think are pretty different and unique to most groups. Uh, and then towards the end, I'll sum up. So first of all, looking at it from a societal perspective, we have an aging society. You know that the figures in the UK are that in 2050, 27%, 28% of people will be over the age of 65. Now, that's hard for many of us to imagine. You know, sort of one in four people walking down the street are going to be over the age of 65. And in Japan, that figure is close to one in three. And what we know is that over the age of 65, the incidence of cardiovascular disease goes up almost exponentially. The incidence of dementia goes up almost exponentially. And the incidence of cancer goes up almost exponentially. 
we desperately need new treatments for these conditions. We've also got, in certain parts of the world, almost epidemics in certain diseases, what I would call diseases of modern living. Diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease. We urgently need treatments for these conditions. The other challenge we've got is that when the pharmaceutical industry has delivered a truly novel therapy, often it's too expensive. Frankly, it's almost unaffordable. So I give the example of Vertex. So three years ago, they launched a drug for the treatment of cystic fibrosis. This drug only works in 4% of the patients, and they are charging $300,000 a year. That's $800 a day, and you think, who on earth can afford that? And then, of course, you know, there are, we all know it's not just patients who are desperate for new treatments. It's their carers. It's their relatives. I mean, literally a few weeks ago, there was a, an alumni weekend here in Oxford. I was asked to give a talk at the, in the New Maths building. And this lady came up to me afterwards, and she gave me this handwritten piece of paper. And she said, my daughter died of glioma earlier on this year. And if you want to study her brain, this is where you can get it from. So on this piece of paper was her daughter's name, her daughter's date of birth, the day she died, and where I could get her brain from. I went home after that lecture quite moved by this, actually, thinking this is how desperate some parents or carers are. You know, I've never met this lady before, and here she is after an hour's lecture almost offering me her daughter's brain. So those are some of the challenges we have in society. Let's look at it from the industry perspective. Well, frankly, the way we're doing drug discovery today, it is too expensive. It is unsustainable. It is becoming unaffordable. In 2012, Forbes did an analysis where they looked at, for a number of these large pharmaceutical companies, they looked at how much money they spent on R&D, <coughs> and they divided that number by the number of drugs that they actually launched in that period. That's not a bad way of doing it. Now, for AstraZeneca, they came up with an average cost of one of these drugs of nearly $12 billion. $12 billion. The best company in that list was Amgen, but even they were about $3.5 billion. $3.5 billion for a new drug is not sustainable. And many of these new drugs were not truly novel drugs. They were, some of them were me-toos or new formulations. And what we need as a society is completely novel mechanisms. So drug discovery today is too costly. The second challenge is that drug discovery today is just too risky. In the past decade, there have been 13 large-scale clinical studies in Alzheimer's. They've been what we call phase three clinical studies. Each of these studies costs several hundred million dollars. One of the Lilly studies costs 750 million dollars. All 13 studies failed. There was not a hint of activity. We are not even close to getting a treatment for Alzheimer's, and this is one disease, frankly, if we don't get something that's going to slow down the progression within the next couple of decades, 
This one disease is going to financially cripple many societies. In the cancer area, for example, there's a paper that came out earlier on this year. They looked at, in 2003, there were 529 molecules in development for cancer. And what they did was they looked to see, in May of last year, so a decade later, what had happened to those 529 molecules. And what they found was 45 of them had made it to the market. That's good. 95 were still in development. But 389 had been terminated. So imagine, we've taken 389 molecules into the clinic and they failed. This process is incredibly risky. It's also incredibly slow. So, and again, another paper that came out earlier on this year, they looked to see when somebody came up with an idea or somebody came up with data suggesting that if I affect this protein or this target, it's going to work in this disease. And then they looked to see how long it took to take that target all the way into the clinic, into the first clinical study. And that figure was between six years and 30 years. Three zero. So this process, it's too costly, it's too risky, and it's too slow. So why? Well, I would put the reasons into maybe two categories. One, I think what I would call organizational, and the second, scientific. So let me just go through the organizational reasons. One of the biggest problems we have today is that most companies, most biotechs, most academic groups, they all work on the same few ideas, the same few targets, the same few proteins. The reason they all work on the same ideas is because everybody reads the same literature, everybody goes to the same conferences, everybody talks to the same opinion leaders. So they start working on this idea, this target, then they go back to their organizations. They spend six, seven years coming up with a proprietary molecule. And then when they take that proprietary molecule and they test it in patients for the first time, what we call phase two clinical studies, the failure rate is more than 90%. Can you imagine spending six, seven years of effort and then nine times out of ten you're going to fail? I was talking to Ishmael Kohler, who's the head of... Uh, uh, R&D at UCB and he said he's done an analysis recently with McKinsey and that figure, that failure rate is 95%. Now for any one company that is a tragic waste of money. It's also a tragic waste of people's careers. But when you think there might be 20 companies all over the world doing exactly the same thing, that is a horrendous waste of money. It's a horrendous waste of people's careers but it's actually a horrendous waste of patients. Ladies and gentlemen, the way we're doing drug discovery today, we are exposing patients to molecules that other groups already know are destined for failure. And I'm guilty of this. When I was in GSK, we were invariably working on targets that Novartis and Lilly and Pfizer were working on. If on the occasion that we did the first clinical study, Nine times out of ten, that clinical study was negative. 
Of course, I didn't pick up the phone and tell Pfizer and Novartis and Lilly, because you don't. So there's a wastage of patience. Ethically and morally, that is wrong. The other challenge that industry's got, the organizational challenge, is that there's too much chopping and changing. This is such a difficult process. If something is difficult, you need a long-term commitment. You can't keep chopping and changing. And of course, in industry, there's a short-term perspective. You know, these are private organizations. If within three months, six months, you've not made sufficient progress, you'll move on to the next idea. So these are organizational challenges. There are many scientific challenges. Frankly, we do not understand the causes of many diseases. We haven't really got a clue what causes schizophrenia, or depression, or Alzheimer's. We also, for many of these diseases, we don't have good biomarkers. So biomarkers are readouts that we can use to assess the progression of the disease, or to assess efficacy of molecules. Patient, if they're less depressed today than they were last week. You can't ask an Alzheimer's patient if their memory is better today than it was last week. That's what we mean by biomarkers. You know, we also don't even know how some existing drugs work. Paracetamol. We've all taken paracetamol. Probably today, across the world, there's probably tens of millions of patients that have taken paracetamol. We do not know how paracetamol works. So if you don't know how existing drugs work, how can you design better ones? And the other challenge is, frankly, many of the preclinical assays we use to prioritize which molecules we take into the clinic, I do not believe that they are clinically predicted. I have seen so many molecules work in rodent assays, and when we take them into the clinic, they do nothing. I do not believe we will ever have a mouse model that truly recapitulates all the pathologies of schizophrenia or depression or Alzheimer's, etc. You're only going to find that out in patients. So these are organizational challenges and scientific challenges. So what are we doing? We've decided to do four things. Because I believe this process is just too expensive, too risky, we've decided to pool resources. I don't think any one organization can discover a drug for Alzheimer's. GSK can't do it, Pfizer can't do it, the University of Oxford can't do it. We need to pool our resources. So what we're doing currently is we pooled resources from 10 large pharmaceutical companies. GSK, Pfizer, Novartis, Lilly, AbbVie, Takeda, Boehringer, Ingelheim, Janssen, Bayer, and Merck. And each of these 10 companies has given us $8 million over a four-year period. We have $80 million of private funding. We've also been fortunate that the Wellcome Trust has put 50 million pounds into our lab here in Oxford. 50 million pounds. And they've just a couple of weeks ago given us another 9 million pounds. So what we've done is we've pooled resources from multiple pharma companies and from a charitable organization like the Wellcome Trust. We're pooling resources, sharing that risk. 
The second thing we've done is we've decided we're only going to work on proteins or targets that are completely novel, that nobody else is working on. Because that's where the truly novel medicines are going to come. So what we do is we work on these new proteins and we generate the protein, we generate new assays, we generate new structures, we generate new inhibitors, we generate new antibodies. Because we believe that's what's going to drive innovation in drug discovery. But the important thing is, the third thing, all those reagents we generate, we make them freely available. We give them away to anybody in academia, anybody in biotech, and anybody in pharma. Because I believe that's the best thing I can do to facilitate science and therefore facilitate drug discovery. I take out no intellectual property, no patents. Anybody can use them and do with them whatever they like. There's no secrets, there's no competition. And of course you can imagine the consequence of that. Every academic who comes into my office wants to work with us because they know I've got no secrets, I'll share all of our know-how, all of our expertise, all of our reagents. And that transparency creates a lot of trust, which is great for collaboration, it's great for science, and it's great for drug discovery. So we're now collaborating with more than 250 academic labs all over the world, and I pay nothing for those collaborations. And I know when I was sitting inside GSK, and this is a true story, I wanted to set up a collaboration with a chap named Clifford Wolf at Harvard. That collaboration, it took us six months to sort out the paperwork, the legal details. Then Clifford had to recruit a postdoc for two years to do those experiments. We didn't get any data for 18 months. Now, I just pick up the phone and talk to somebody, say, look, we've got this molecule, will you test it? We send them the molecule, next week they're testing it, a month later we're writing the paper. This is crowdsourcing science. And the fourth thing we do is that every bit of data or reagents or knowledge we generate, we publish it immediately. We make it, put it on our website, we talk about it, we publish it, and that's what we believe is going to reduce duplication and wastage. If we've done something already, there's no point 20 labs all over the world trying to do exactly the same thing. That's just a waste of research. The impact of this has been phenomenal. We're now getting biotech companies and CROs coming to us and saying, look, they want to uh, take our molecules and they want to test them in their proprietary platforms. And the reason they're doing this is because they want to be on our publications. And they also see us as a conduit into these 10 large pharmaceutical companies. That's why they're doing it. We've got contract research organizations, CROs, saying we want to take the molecules you've generated and we want to put our own resource and we will generate a clinical molecule, so one that you can give to patients, and then we will sell that to GSK or Pfizer or Novartis, etc. We say, fine, that's great. We want to facilitate science and we want to facilitate drug discovery. But of course, now what's happening is that we are generating these new tools. These are starting points for drug discovery. These are novel, they're high quality. And then our academic network over, all over the world is generating lots of new biology. They're saying, this inhibitor, if I put it into this assay, it works in this cancer. So they're generating this new biology. Now, of course, new tools and new biology 
is a starting point for a new biotech. So what's been happening is that many of our collaborators have been taking our tools and the biology that our network has generated to create new biotechs in Boston and San Francisco and Shanghai. So what we're now intending to do is to create more of those here in Oxford or in the UK. So to sum up, I believe the way we're doing drug discovery today is wasteful in terms of resource, it's wasteful in terms of people's careers, and it's wasteful in terms of patients. What we're doing is bringing together multiple academics with multiple pharma companies, with multiple patient groups. We're underpinning that with public, charitable, and private funds to try and come up with new targets, new proteins, which industry can then take and generate proprietary molecules and take them all the way to the market. This is a way of uh, helping industry, it's helping patients, and it's helping society. We're trying to create a new ecosystem where we can generate more novel medicines, more novel medicines more quickly, and more novel medicines more quickly, but also more cheaply. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Um, sitting in the audience, I was thinking that it's very difficult to speak after Chaz on these issues because he's such an eloquent and passionate uh, speaker. Uh, I'd much rather stay sitting and listen to him for the rest of the hour. But we thought the way we could divide this up is for him to provide this initial and powerful diagnosis and then for me to review some of the additional experiences we have of open science or open source drug discovery and try to uh, raise a few issues pertaining to those. So the questions I'm trying to be exploring in my 20 minutes are uh, the following. Is the kind of model that Chas outlined and that the Structural Genomics Consortium has put in practice a feasible way of approaching drug discovery? And the answer to that, as Chas already intimated, is yes. Uh, under what conditions can that model thrive? And what are the incentives and the infrastructures that could facilitate this alternative uh, model of drug discovery? <clears throat> and I'm going to be talking about uh, a handful of these experiences in uh, open science or open source drug discovery. I'm going to say a little bit about uh, the field of anti-malarials because uh, we have quite a bit of experience over the last decade in developing uh, open source or open access drug discovery platforms. Uh, and then I'm going to say a, a couple of things about areas which are not uh, neglected diseases specific. Uh, Charles already spoke about the Structural Genomics Consortium, so I, I will limit my comments to another initiative in open, drug, uh, open source drug discovery, which is uh, the recent uh, GSK's uh, published kinase inhibitor set. Now, this uh, work comes from a series of interviews I'm currently conducting with scientists and research managers um, who are involved in these alternative models for drug discovery. And this is a quote uh, from one of the interviews with one of the managers in a big pharma company who, uh, at the start of the interview, told me, uh, if your first question is, and what about IP, what about intellectual property, then I can tell that you don't get it. Now, that threw me off a little bit because 
I was about to ask a few questions about IP, which I immediately parked aside for later. Uh, but uh, it was, it was uh, uh, an interesting moment because it, it told me something about the, the mindset that is involved in making these open source collaborations and open innovation and collaborations uh, work. Chad spoke about the organizational and scientific challenges. I think there's also a cultural challenge uh, in bringing people uh, together in these uh, platforms. I'll come back to this uh, later in the talk. So let me say uh, first a few things about anti-malaria drug discovery in the 21st century, because this is a field that has adopted uh, the kind of uh, collaborative uh, sharing principles that Chas uh, outlined. First of all, this is traditionally understood as a problem of market failure, which, as you know, implies that you know, companies don't have uh, uh, an economic rationale to invest in risky drug discovery because the populations that need these medications won't be able to pay the cancer prices that will allow those companies to recoup their investments. Uh, and that's evident in the progressive depletion of the pharmaceutical pipeline throughout the late uh, 1990s. Now, a lot of things have happened in this field, as many of you uh, know. First of all, there's been a very significant inflow on phil of philanthropic funding uh, from the likes of the Gates Foundation, the Wellcome Trust, DFID. Uh, Gates, as probably many of you know, in 2007 announced uh, a global eradication campaign against malaria. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago in New Orleans at the meeting of the American uh, Tropical Society, Gates announced an increase of funding uh, from the foundation of 30 percent. Uh, there is also a, a, a few very interesting examples of public-private partnerships, uh, funding and sponsoring a lot of this research. Medicines for Malaria Venture is uh, perhaps the best known. And uh, we also have a wealth of new data about which kinds of compounds uh, could make a difference in uh, malaria drug discovery. Now, let me focus on the example of the data because I think it suggests some interesting dynamics in, in open source and open innovation drug discovery. Um, over the last few years, we have been able to screen large pharmaceutical <coughs> compound libraries to try to identify compounds with promising activity against malaria. And some big pharma companies have opened the libraries to that screening. GSK and Novartis are uh, perhaps the best examples. So there's been a, a very significant effort to screen those private compound libraries and try to identify those compounds that could potentially lead to new anti-malarials. And this, the, the result of that screening campaign is uh, about 20,000 hits, which is the initial identification of uh, chemical interaction uh, with the disease. Now, that raises the question of how to optimize the use of that data. Uh, what kind of network do you need to have in place to make sure that that new data is uh, fully uh, maximized? And here, the key uh, initiative has been to make a lot of those compounds and a lot of that data freely accessible through free access platforms like Kemble, which is run by the European Bioinformatics Institute. And this, this is uh, significant because Again, many of those compounds are proprietary compounds. Uh, they were uh, in those private companies' libraries, and those companies have agreed to make access to those compounds free. Now, one further iteration of this initiative has been uh, the launch of the Malaria Box, um, which is a program by Medicines for Malaria Venture. 
And what they have done is to take a portion of those promising compounds, a total of about 400, and ship them free of charge to any researcher in the world interested in malaria tract discovery with the only obligation to place any data resulting from that research in the public domain within a period of two years. Now, this initiative was launched in 2012, um, and it's too early to tell how this is impacting actual drug discovery. This is an out-of-date image with, which tells you which groups have received this free-of-charge malaria box from MMV. As you can see, most of the R&D activity is still, for obvious reasons, concentrated in North America and Europe. But you see that the distribution of this box and these uh, 400 compounds um, is beginning to move well beyond those traditional centers of pharmaceutical R&D. Now, the second example I wanted to give you of uh, open source drug discovery uh, is the open source malaria project launched uh, by Matthew Todd and his lab uh, in 2011. And Matthew Todd is um, with us today. This is perhaps a, a more radical incorporation of open source principles to drug discovery. I've listed here the six laws that Matt's group um, abides by. Um, all data are open, all ideas are shared, and they're shared in real time. Uh, I mentioned before that one of the conditions that MMB placed on the use of the malaria box is that research groups will have to deposit the data that they obtain from that research in the public domain within a period of two years. The idea here is a little bit more radical because it's not just to share data after the research has taken place, but to share that data as the research is effectively happening. Anyone can take part at any level of the project. There will be no patents. Another common theme with the model uh, that Chas presented today. Um, it's a network very much open to suggestions, to public discussion, and it's a project that is not owned by any specific lab or any specific academic group. It tries to operate in a truly uh, open source format. I mentioned already the point that data is released as the project is happening. Um, this data is shared under a Creative Commons license, uh, which implies in this case that uh, anybody is free to share and to adapt that data. Attribution will need to be made to the originator of the data, and changes will have to be indicated if a derivative is created. And the way I, I think of this uh, process and network is um, as a method to collectivize the process of uh, medicinal chemistry intuition. And this is something that I think Matt has written about very eloquently. We think of medicinal chemistry as this, um, at least to an outsider, slightly mysterious process that goes in the minds of uh, individual scientists and individual companies. And an open source platform like open source malaria is a way of collectivizing that process of creating uh, intuitions, and also of crowdsourcing the evaluation of compounds in this case. And again, that's an interesting challenge to the traditional way in which this work is done by pharmaceutical companies. Uh, anybody who has had any interaction with uh, pharmaceutical companies will know that you know, people tend to get very attached to their individual projects, to their individual compounds. Um, 
it's very difficult to terminate projects um, early on. Uh, another informant in a, in a pharma company had recently told me that at their company, a decision is the starting point for a discussion with the implication that it was very difficult to, to terminate projects that didn't show promise. This sort of crowdsourcing model is, again, a way of, um, if you want, collectivizing that uh, process of evaluation and detaching it from individual interests. And the claim of, is also that this is a faster way of developing these compounds up to their clinical evaluation. The other example I wanted to introduce for the discussion is um, GSK's Kines inhibitor set, which was launched in 2013. And this is an interesting example for me because one ar argument that you could make about the malaria work is that, of course, because malaria is uh, a market failure in terms of economic incentives, uh, it's easier for companies to agree to share data and compounds and information and know-how because they have uh, no interest otherwise to develop medicines on their own terms. And this is different because this applies to uh, all kinds of disease areas, including uh, those that are central to the commercial for-profit activity of the companies. Kinases are essentially a class of proteins involved in cellular signaling and they're a critical target for many medications in many disease areas. Now, this uh, graph, which is, has been produced by John Overington from the European Bioinformatics Institute, uh, tells you how many companies are involved uh, in research that involves uh, kinases. Uh, you probably won't be able to see the names of the pharma companies, but this is a fairly exhaustive list of big and small pharma companies, all of which uh, have uh, worked with kines inhibitors all the way to uh, a phase one clinical trial. Now, of course, many of those phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials will fail, as Chas uh, alluded to. So there's a lot of interest across pharma uh, in this area. Now, this is a contrasting picture, which I've seen Chas use in some of his presentations. And this essentially tells you the graph on the left uh, will list on the vertical axis uh, all the kinases that are known, over 500. And the horizontal line tells you how many publications, scientific publications, have appeared on each of those kinases. And as you can see, what that graph shows is an extreme concentration of research and development on an exceedingly small segment of the kinome, of the collection of kinases in the human body. Again, this goes back to the point that Charles was making earlier that all the companies are working essentially on a very small subset uh, of targets. The second graph on the right is, is a similar uh, image, in this case, not by publications, but by patents. So again, it tells you that the patenting uh, of this area, which is a good indicator of where the research and development efforts are going, is again very concentrated within the kinome. So there's a vast expanse of kinases that nobody is working on, that nobody is researching. And this is exactly the problem that uh, the Kines Inhibitor Set Initiative by GSK has tried to address. And it has done so by offering to 
make hundreds of compounds available to any investigator who is working in the area. Again, the data is made freely accessible through Campbell, which is the free access chemoinformatics platform. The material transfer agreement is, uh, at, at least by the standards of the pharmaceutical company, uh, simplified, so it makes the transfer of compounds uh, easier. Uh, the only condition, again, is that the results are made publicly available, uh, including negative data. And one particular challenge of this initiative, and I will come back to this in the conclusion, is that it, once it was launched by GSK, it was very difficult uh, for them to recruit other big pharma companies into this effort. And this is something that has happened in other open science initiatives. That one, once one of the big pharmas gets involved, that sometimes scares off other big pharmas because um, they're either um, suspicious or reluctant to, to share their data. Again, this is one of the reasons why the Structural Genomics Consortium, the example that Chas was presenting earlier, is so uh, significant. Because in that case, you have 10 large pharmaceutical companies sharing data, sharing compounds, sharing resources. So I'm going to skip what I was going to say about the Structural Genomics Consortium, but I hope we can come back to this in the Q&A. Um, I just want to briefly mention some common, common dynamics in, in these and other open science initiatives in drug discovery. The first and perhaps the most significant one is that the threshold of what's considered competitive research and development is shifting. So the model that Chas outlined is based on defining a segment of the drug discovery and development process as pre-competitive. Uh, it is too risky, it is too costly to conduct this research on an individual basis. What's interesting is how that threshold of what's competitive and what's pre-competitive is shifting downwards in the clinical development pathway. And more and more aspects of early stage drug discovery are becoming, for the companies themselves, pre-competitive, or at least good candidates for pre-competitive research and development. It's also interesting to see how many of these initiatives um, start from uh, what Matt has called a kernel of funded activity. So there's, there's a core of often publicly funded activity or data that serves as an attractor for other actors to get involved in these networks. It's also interesting to see the blurring of two models for sharing resources, the free access model and the commons model. Uh, and this is perhaps social scientific speak, but essentially the commons model implies that a group of actors agree to share resources among themselves and to exclude everybody else from that common. Um, so if you're inside that particular community, you're, you have access to the resources. But if you're outside of the community, you don't. And that's typically contrasted with free access models where essentially the resources are available to all, to all. And I think what's very interesting about some of these examples is how in some cases what begins as, as a commons model of a series of actors sharing resources among themselves um, can quickly spiral into perhaps a more interesting free access models. Um, also uh, interesting, I didn't have a chance to discuss, in, discuss this in detail, but we placed a lot of emphasis on the availability of data, the availability of materials. I think what many of these experiences suggest is that we need additional functionalities and additional platforms to maximize the circulation of those resources. 
that simply by making things available, they are not necessarily going to be used, definitely not in the most effective manner. So we need to think more carefully about what those additional functionalities and platforms are. And these are all, as I see them, essentially exercises or experiments in community building. This is all about creating new communities, new networks of actors uh, willing to work together. Now, I want to say a few things about how to uh, incentivize this traditional way of doing things. Um, and I just wanted to mention a few ideas uh, for the discussion. Uh, one is that uh, I think we need alternative metrics for research and development productivity. Many of the metrics that we have um, are very patent-centric. So essentially what they reward is the prosecution of patent protection on the research that one has conducted. Uh, we don't have similarly robust metrics to understand the productivity of open science, open source drug discovery efforts. Um, and there the key variable is uh, not even the number of outputs, but the robustness of that network. And we don't have, again, we don't have from the social scientific point of view, we don't have good metrics to assess, to evaluate um, those criteria. I think we also need to think a little bit harder about tax incentives for this kind of open science work. Uh, again, we have a series of tax incentives that are premised on patent production. Um, we don't have the same kind of tax relief system for research and development that does not necessarily lead to intellectual property, uh, but might have uh, other very significant effects. I think we've seen, obviously, a change in how research funders um, qualify their funding, uh, for instance, in terms of making data uh, freely available. Uh, the Gates Foundation, again, just announced uh, a new set of principles for, for how the research funded by them should be published and made available. And a final point that I think is worth mentioning here is that a lot of this movement is driven uh, not just by scientists being dissatisfied uh, with the state of research and development, or by companies uh, recognizing that the traditional way of doing things is not working for them anymore. This is also being promoted by a series of new advocacy groups. And the key example here is patient advocacy organizations. And again, the Structural Genomics Consortium is a very interesting example of how to incorporate those voices into the research and development effort, how to make those organizations into partners. Uh, I just want to make a pitch for uh, more research. Uh, I think we need more research on a number of um, issues. Uh, we need to understand better how uh, this alternative way of doing drug discovery will eventually impact uh, the cost of the medicine, uh, the affordability of the medicine, access of the medicine. And of course, that involves moving beyond early stage drug discovery, which is what I've been talking about today, into the clinical phases of the evaluation of new medicines. But we definitely need to understand better the connection between the way in which drug discovery is organized and the actual cost uh, and affordability of the medicines. Uh, we need to understand better what are the challenges of 
extending these pre-competitive models into the clinical evaluation of the compounds. Um, we also need to understand how does open science or whether open science impacts the geographical distribution of research and development activities. Uh, one of the issues that I know uh, preoccupies Chas is the dismantling of pharma R&D capacity in the UK. Um, the question is whether these alternative ways of doing drug discovery will have an impact on that redistribution of R&D capacity around the world or not. And finally, how do we govern this expansive, increasingly complex, multi-stakeholder collaborations? What is the best way for these networks to govern themselves? I just want to finish with a quote by my famous psychologist, Kurt Levine, who once said, you cannot understand a system until you try to change it. He didn't say you cannot understand the system unless you change it, but only by trying to understand um, but only by trying to change the system do you really understand uh, what works and what doesn't. And I think the message here is that these open science and open source uh, initiatives, even if they're not able to radically change the system as a whole, uh, at least give us very interesting clues for how the system works and possibly how to make it better. Thank you. informative uh, and helpful discussions as we think our way into this. Uh, Chaz, yours was uh, truly remarkable, a masterclass in how to talk uh, precisely uh, within your 20-minute allocation in an incredibly well-structured way uh, without a single note. I was deeply impressed, uh, but it was obviously substantively uh, very impressive too. And uh, Javier, uh, thank you for uh, so methodically going through the different uh, questions that are raised uh, in this presentation. So uh, we have about um, 40 minutes left for Q&A. Uh, this is being webcast and recorded, so uh, please um, don't speak if you don't want to be webcast uh, or recorded and be aware that you will be. Uh, and maybe just identify yourself when you ask a question. Clara has a microphone. Uh, who would like to go first? Um, hi, this is more directed towards Professor Bantra. And to what extent do you believe biomarkers will pave the way towards new drug development? I think that's key. And in fact, just before coming into this room, we were having a discussion with uh, Richard and Megan and Javier about sort of some studies that are underway in dementia patients where they're intending to have these sort of activity measures. So you literally measure the activity of the patient 24-7. They're intending to do it over six months. You know, monitor sleep patterns, monitor when they wake up, what they do, how much movement, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you can imagine if you did that over six months, you would get a, a true understanding of that disease, you know, Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, et cetera. And I think it's having those sorts of readouts, ideally non-invasive and cheap, um, I think those are what's really going to produce a step change in this area. So 
you know, one of the things that you know, Richard Havier and I have talked about this many times, I worry particularly that the pharmaceutical industry has pulled out of neuropsychiatry, uh, or they've certainly reduced their efforts in neuropsychiatry. And that's not a criticism. I don't blame them because they're private organizations. They're trying to reduce their risk and they're trying to reduce their costs. The problem with neuropsychiatric conditions is that you know, they're just incredibly difficult. I mean, drug discovery is difficult, but developing a drug for schizophrenia or depression or Alzheimer's, I believe, is the most difficult. And so I don't blame them for pulling out. But you know, that's all the more reason why we, here in academia, have got to de-risk that area. Because if we don't de-risk it, industry will never go back in. Yes, just to echo Ian, two great presentations, quite different but very consistent. Uh, Richard Barker from CASME. Uh, and as Chaz, you know, we've been working on the other half of the equation, actually the other two-thirds of the equation, which is development, which is, you know, for every one euro or pound or dollar spent in, in research, we spend two at least uh, in development. So. There is a, there's a concept, as you know, of adaptive development to try and cut some of the costs and, and time out of that. But the reason that development occurs, that extra two pounds is spent, is because the company who fund, funds that, in fact, uh, will ex ex experience some years, not 20 years, nine, 10 years perhaps, perhaps less, of market exclusivity when they've done so. Um, and so, um, I, I wear a second hat, which is sit, sit on the board of a major pharmaceutical company, which will not spend that money unless they have some form of protection. Um, so, so I think the question becomes, I think this is a genuinely good academic question for people like us in Oxford to, to work on, which is what are the alternatives to patents to provide that kind of protection? Because I, I don't think I can foresee a world where governments will spend that uh, clinical development money. You can imagine the committees to decide what to do. Right? Um, and so there, there is, I think, a fascinating policy question. Is how, do, how do we supersede patents? Because companies won't give up patents until they see some other mechanism for, gr for granting market exclusivity when they've spent their, that extra two pounds. So I'm very interested in both of your views about how that might be done. Um, I'll give it a try. So it's, a, <laughs> it's a very difficult question, but I'm glad it came up um, so early. And first, I want to make a, a perhaps a slightly philosophical point, um, which is that you know, we we often think of patents as um, the opposite of uh, making things public, right? So patents are about closing. Um, open source, open innovation is about opening. Uh, but philosophically and legally, the patent is also a way of making things public, right? So in exchange, I mean, that's what's generally known as a patent bargain. In exchange for you uh, releasing information about your invention and enough information to make uh, that invention public, we will grant you a, a monopoly over the use of that invention for a period of time. And I, I mention this because uh, I think we have grown accustomed to <coughs> thinking in these binary terms of patent versus the opposite. But patents are technically, in an important sense, 
uh, a way of publicizing, a way of making public, a way of sharing information. Now, the way in which patents are often used doesn't really sustain that bargain in the sense that, you know, to begin with, most, most patents are never acted upon in any way, so they're not even useful in terms of sustaining a monopoly. Now, as, as you know, there's a number of um, alternatives to patents um, in terms of funding an alternative way of rewarding research and development. There's been discussion about prices for actors that develop new medicines. Uh, one problem I have personally with the idea of um, you know, waiting until the medicine is available and then rewarding the innovation that went into that medicine is that it's difficult for me to see how that will sustain a competitive dynamic once it becomes very clear which company, in this case, is likely to develop the medicine. <laughs> so everybody else is going to run away from that particular problem um, once a, a, a leading horse appears on the scene. And to me, that that's not a sustainable model because I think you want um, competition for as long as, as you want. Uh, but that's one way of thinking about it. It's, it's recalculating uh, the reward in terms that uh, are not exclusive of research efforts from the beginning. So I think Richard raises some really important points. I mean, I, I don't expect government to fund big clinical studies. And this is why it's all the more important that we do everything we can to make the pharmaceutical industry successful. You know, what upsets me is when I, in the past 15 years, I've seen Pfizer shut down their research site in Sandwich. I've seen GSK shut down their research site in Harlow. I've seen Merck shut down their research site in Harlow. Novartis have recently shut down their site in Horsham, and AstraZeneca shut down their site in Loughborough. Each of these sites, the Pfizer site at one point, had 7,000 highly paid scientists working there. Those jobs have gone. This is an industry that requires immense innovation. If we in the UK are not going to do this, I don't know what we're going to do. Is it, are we just going to be bankers and tourists, etc.? You know, so we have to make this industry grow and thrive. And it's particularly upsetting because if you look at the track record in drug discovery, most of the drugs were discovered in the US, UK, Switzerland, Germany. You know, that's, that's historically. So historically, the UK has a good track record in drug discovery. So then you ask yourself, why is the industry pulling out of the UK? Well, they're pulling out because they're trying to reduce their costs and they're setting up big R&D organizations in China and India and Brazil, etc. But they're cheaper today. They're not going to be cheaper tomorrow. So uh, we need to support the industry. I think Richard's point about sort of uh, a company, of course, rightly, is only going to invest in a molecule if it's got intellectual property. And I totally agree with that. I totally accept it. I think what I'm saying is we only really find out if a new target or a new protein is going to be a drug once we've tested it in patients. So what I'm suggesting is let's not have 20 companies or 20 groups doing that same experiment in parallel, in secret, and then getting to there and nine times out of 10 failing. I'm saying let's pool our resources, let's do that experiment once, let's do it well, let's identify the 9 in 10 that's garbage, and let's identify the 1 in 10 that has the potential to be a drug. And because we'll publish all of that data, 
then GSK and Pfizer and Novartis and Lilly, they can start working on that one in ten target. They can invest their resources on that, they can do what they're good at, which is high throughput screen, lead optimization, come up with a proprietary molecule. At least then they know they're working on a clinically validated de-risk target. And then they can concentrate their resources, hopefully get it to the market quickly. It's good for industry, it's good for patients, and it's good for society. Thank you very much. Um, a question that follows from, from the previous one. I think the important thing is not just to get new drugs out, but these drugs to be affordable to the NHS, to the population. Um, so within this new system of collaboration, how can that be assured? And what <coughs> new ideas are there, there to make sure that these drugs will be affordable and the NHS will be able to pay them with other health institutions or um, individuals in other countries? And um, a second question is about expectations. It seems to me that there is a great expectation for, I would call it altruism, um, from researchers, so kind of academic institutions, researchers here at Oxford University, and generally from publicly funded research, like in universities and so forth, um, that they should share, they should open up, they should take a lot of the risk. So publicly funded, government funded, or charitable funded research should take a lot of the risk in order to be able to give something to the pharma when a lot of the risk has already been um, absorbed, and then they will be able to kind of to, to move on. Where, so we, we expect altruism from a big part of the research community, and we allow egotistical behavior, may, may I call it as like the opposite of altruism. I cannot think of a better word, but I'm sure there is another one that is not exactly as bad. Um, from, from the industry. And how, how are you going to convince researchers that they should be working like good researchers, altruistically, in one side of this kind of development where the other ones will be allowed to pursue their own individual goals? So people often say to me that I, I'm uh, using public funds, charitable funds, to help industry. You could argue I am. But actually, I'm doing this because I believe our job in academia is to do whatever we think is, obviously it's to train the next generation, but it's to do whatever we think is right for society and the economy. At the moment, this industry is falling apart. Patients and society are not getting enough new drugs. If we let it carry on, we will not have new drugs. We will not get a new drug for Alzheimer's or depression or schizophrenia. I can give many examples. I think of bipolar disorder. 1949, we started prescribing lithium for bipolar disorder. 2014, we're still prescribing lithium. What progress have we made? And I can give examples in mo many, many disease areas. So this isn't me being altruistic. This is me trying to, you could argue I'm being selfish, because at the end of the day, one day, I'm going to be a patient, or somebody I care about is going to be a patient. If we don't do something about it, if we don't pool our resources, our expertise, our infrastructure, our know-how, etc., we won't do it. I believe industry, the pharmaceutical industry, is good at certain things. It's good at things that require scale and infrastructure. high throughput screening, lead optimization. Then those really big clinical studies, the phase 2B, phase 3, the experiments that cost several hundred million dollars, we will never do them in academia. We will never get the funding to do them in academia. 
So it's only big pharma that can do those. Biotech can't do them, and academia certainly can't do them. But I believe that we in academia, there are certain things that are easier. It's easier for me to work with clinicians. It's easier for me to access patient groups. It's easier for me to access patient material. It's easier for me to access patient databases. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to pull the what's good in academia with what's good in industry. We're bringing in patient organizations, bringing in regulators to increase the probability that together we generate new medicines. I haven't answered your question about affordable, but I'll let Javier talk because I'm talking too much. Well, first of all, I think that's, that's an excellent question and point. First of all, on the issue of altruism, just as an aside, I've been in academia long enough to not recognize academics as particularly altruistic. Uh, maybe, maybe they have a, a different measure of value, you know, whether or, you know, they value publications, they might value research funding uh, more than they would value you know, income. But I mean, I'm making this point because I think it's, this is partly about playing with the differentials in expectations and value propositions for different actors in the in this process, and academics have, you know, when academics engage in this kind of activity, they are not just doing it for altruistic reasons. There's also a self-interested aspect which sustains the, the, the activity itself. But I think your point, your broader point about how this is going to affect affordability is, is an essential one. And I mentioned that point as one of the questions that we need to raise and research and think about further, because if if these collaborative networks effectively de-risk early stage research and make that research cheaper, at least if you take the measure of the whole set of molecules that might have been tested or developed otherwise, then that saving has to be translated, I think, into the cost. Um, whether it's translated by the pharmaceutical companies themselves or has to be enforced by um, providers of healthcare um, is an open question, but it has to be translated. I mean, effectively, one of the things that the model that Chas presented does, if it works well, is that it will shorten the period it takes, or the time it takes, for a drug to become an available medicine. Now, that has very significant implications for the ability um, of that company to claim patent protection um, for an extended period of time. Because if patent protection typically lasts 20 years and you have shortened the period of time that it took you to develop that molecule to a phase one trial, that has very significant implications for, for how long that company is able to recoup research and development in, um, investment. So what, what I'm trying to say is that it has, that question is essential, it has to happen. Otherwise, the model that Charles was presenting and that I was discussing doesn't really work if, if the medicines don't become affordable. Um, what is the point, right? And I think it will be a combination of um, companies recalculating what's in their interest uh, and also rethinking what is, their, uh, what is the form of citizenship that they want to develop and governments imposing uh, criteria and um, principles on how much they're willing to pay. Can I just follow up with one minor point? Yeah. And, sort of, and this is, a, I'm sorry, another anecdote, but literally this happened a couple of months ago. <coughs> so um, a lady who lives in Bath, her daughter has a rare 
cancer. It's a rare GI stromal tumor. It's drug insensitive. It, the, these patients are only one in a million, so in the UK there's 60 of them. So she came to see me from Bath, and her daughter's uh, clinician works at Addenbrooke's in Cambridge, so he came down. So both these individuals are sitting in my office, and uh, you know the mother is desperate for a new treatment for her daughter. A pharmaceutical company isn't going to develop a new drug for a condition where there's only 60 patients in the UK. I said to this mother, I said, how is your daughter doing? She said her daughter is 22 years old and she's just had her stomach removed. I sat there thinking, you know, I have a 24-year-old daughter and I'm thinking, how the hell does any parent cope with that? You know, it's... It, Will Hudson organised a, a dinner at Hartford College a couple of weeks later and there was about 10 or 12 of us sitting around the table and we were talking about the problems in drug discovery. And it's very easy to say, oh, the, the regulatory hurdles are too high or the patents are not long enough, etc., etc. And it's easy for us academics to do that and point fingers, etc. I eventually said, you know, it's, it's only when you're a patient or a patient's carer, you really have a razor-sharp focus on the only thing that matters. And that's coming up with a cure or something to prevent that disease. Money, problems don't matter, they want solutions. Great. Um, I think the person behind has got the mic and then we'll move it forward. Yeah. Um, at the start of your uh, talks, you uh, outlined um, the three scientific issues of the pharmaceutical industry, like not enough pathological understanding, uh, how the compounds are actually tested, and also you know, mechani uh, mechanism of action, but um, I actually think you missed one. Um, and I think I'm quite interested to hear your opinion on uh, compound libraries and exploring the amount of chemical space, because uh, I think that's a major issue, because obviously if you screen all these targets for the same compounds, you're going to get the same hits, and uh, you know, you're not actually going to explore anything at all. And from the te second talk, you said that you had a compound library of four million you had like 20,000 hits. What's the chance that most of those hits are analogs of each other? What's the chance that most of those hits are from the same farm before? You know, the amount of actual chemical space explored is ridiculous. It's like less than like three or four percent because most of the uh, compounds in these chemical libraries are like, have a molecular weight of around 300 to 350 Daltons. To make all the possibilities of that molecular weight, you need more atoms that are, that are in the universe. And I think to actually, uh, my personal opinion is that if you want to actually change the pharmaceutical industry, you've got to change about how you actually find the pharmaca for the starting point of each drug project. And I'd be quite interested to uh, hear your opinions on that, because I think that's a major issue within big pharma. I, I think it's a fair point. I, I, I'm a little bit more optimistic because you know, like I said, when I was working in GSK, we were working on <coughs> targets that everybody else was working on. And we did manage to secure IP. And we managed to come up with molecules that were different to Pfizer and Novartis and Lilly. And I'm not convinced that they were all of the same pharmacophore. Uh, so I actually believe as an industry, we have become very, very good at generating high-quality clinical molecules. 
The problem we've got is we don't know which target to go after, which protein to go after. And then once we've got that clinical molecule, we don't know how to test it. You know, I've sat on, I sit on the board of a number of companies and the, num the amount of time we spend talking about what that clinical study should look like. You know, so we have an asset which is anti-inflammatory. Well, you can make a case where you could test it in rheumatoid arthritis, you could test it in inflammatory bowel disease, it may work in multiple sclerosis, it may work in COPD, it may work in psoriasis, and that's what I meant about we don't understand the disease. And so often we end up taking that molecule and we end up doing the same sort of clinical study because we're all talking to the same clinicians and everything. So I, I think it's a fair point. I've not given it that much thought, but I'm a, I think I'm a little bit more optimistic than you are. Yes, I, I will add to that that um, your point about the chemical um, libraries, I think you need to look at, at that question also, um, disease area by disease area, and historically. Right? So the example I was given is of anti-malarials, and the phenotypic screening of large compound libraries to try to identify chemicals with activity against malaria. Now, against the background of um, a very thin pipeline uh, and historically very limited efforts to develop new class of anti-malarials, having that information of you know, the 20,000 compounds that show some initial activity, that's a significant breakthrough compared to what was there before, which was not very much. So I think if, if you start analyzing the issue disease area by disease area, then you can assess to what extent the chemical space is, is being expanded or not. And you don't really actually have that much creative place to start from because you think that, oh, this compound's uh, active, you know, it's got a good. Uh, a potency, and I don't want to really change that much of the structure, the structure itself, because it's already there. So, I think, like, I think personally, that actually does have a quite a serious impact. I mean, there's other things coming through, like frame based drug discovery and stuff. But, um, but like you know, you see, like you know, I think there's, when you said that you used to work for GSK, wasn't there like a? There's some lectures happening in um, the CRR at the moment on this guy from GSK. And AstraZeneca and GSK screened the same library against the same target, and AZ got to the, got to the pattern two weeks before GSK did, because they just did they did all the good things that I'm going to do. They did all the they optimization, did all these things, but just out of luck, basically AZ got to the same point. And I think if you screen against more diverse amounts of molecular skeletons or whatever, then you've got more of a chance of finding a compound for these specific diseases. That can end up, you know, to like, you know, increase your possibility of producing that one in ten uh, product that goes through phase three clinical trials. Uh, the gentleman um, in front of you, yeah, the hand up. Um, bearing in mind that uh, a patent only lasts for twenty years and um, the development time has got to be taken out of that. Uh, do you think that pharma companies are much more likely to be invested in the Commons model, where there may be, for example, 10 pharma companies uh, 
collaborating, they develop a particular drug within that group, and in fact they don't actually patent it. They just don't tell anyone about it. And then those 10 companies can keep that uh, intellectual property for themselves, which in fact actually is what Coca-Cola did with their formula. Well, I think the model I was proposing was, I'm saying that we in the public sector work with a number of companies and we identify the one in ten target that's likely to be a drug. And then all those companies can go away because they know it's a clinically validated de-risk target. Then they can go away and come up with their own proprietary molecule and take out patents, etc., etc. And then it's a race between those companies all the way to the market. So I don't think it's too dissimilar. I, I, you know, I just don't. I, I don't know. You know, if you have uh, just ten companies working together and we're not involved, uh, we won't. S we won't see what they're doing, and what will happen is that we in academia will carry on wasting our time and money. And one of the things we're trying to do is to reduce all this duplication and wastage. Sorry, with um, what I meant was uh, the ten companies would be working with you, but I, I mean I, I suppose the problem would be uh, the, the companies would then be worried about that information leaking out. I suppose that would be the problem. Yeah, it's open source. But I mean, in my opinion, papers are not a good thing. I think the other thing to bear in mind is that you know. Say, for example, if we did a clinical study and showed a molecule worked in epilepsy, then the companies could do three things. One, they can come up with their own proprietary molecule for epilepsy. Secondly, if they already had a drug for epilepsy, they could take out patents in combination with that. And thirdly, we know that every anti-epileptic drug out there is used to treat neuropathic pain. So they could do clinical studies and take out patents in other indications. So I, I think there is lots of scope for patents uh, after we've done that initial clinical experiment. Yes, another point I would just add to that is that I can't think of many examples of uh, you know, 10 large pharma companies pooling resources among themselves in the absence of, sort of the, the kind of neutral third-party uh, actor that in this case the Structural Genomics Consortium provides. So the key is whether the fact that these companies have to pool resources through this third party generates an interesting amount of spillover from that commons model, right? So in this case, for instance, through, through publications and through making the information freely available, which is a way in which this commons model could spill over into a free access model because more and more people are going to have access to more and more data. And I think that's not any significant contribution of that third party to the process. So can I illustrate it with an example? So we generated an inhibitor for a new protein. I mean, the name of the protein doesn't really matter, but we generated this inhibitor. And we showed that it worked in this rare cancer called nut midline carcinoma. And we published that in December 2010 in Nature. And since then, that molecule we have given out to more than 400 labs all over the world. These labs have taken that molecule and they, not us, they have shown that molecule works in a whole range of other cancers. 
They've come up with some data that it works in cardiac hypertrophy, it works in sepsis, it works in fibrosis, it works in COPD, and they've e there's even data suggesting it's a target for male contraception. Now, we didn't do those experiments, they did those experiments and they published it. As a consequence of our publication, there is now more than 200 publications on that target, many of them using that molecule. Many of our pharma partners have started their own proprietary programs. Our collaborator in Harvard has secured $15 million of VC funding to set up a biotech in Boston to take that target into the clinic. And today, less than four years later, there are six companies with six different molecules in the clinic. Now, to go from a completely new target with no molecule, four years later, to six molecules in the clinic from six different companies is unprecedented. This is crowdsourcing science. It's not just about the pharma companies working together. It's these 400 academic labs doing whatever they think is appropriate with that molecule. Okay. The woman has been very patient. <laughs> um, Megan Morris from, from CASME. Um, obviously, I, I'm um, fascinated with the model that you've uh, created, and I think that a collaborative, uh, a collaborative, collaborative approach is definitely the way to go. I'm wondering if you have any comment on what might happen next. And I'm thinking here about, for example, when the internet was created, everyone thought that it would give um, little-known artists, the, the sort of long tail of artists, a, a great platform to put forward their work and that there will be a great diversity of, um, of, of new creations. And I think that has happened to some extent, but it has also concentrated um, many more people onto the very few at the very top. And I wonder if the same sort of thing is in danger of happening here, where if you and put more information into the public domain and there's an easier um, judgment of which molecules are most likely to be successful, then the pharmaceutical companies will actually focus their efforts much more and you'll get even more companies all piling onto the same molecule and less diversity within the development pathway. Well, Megan, I mean, I think there is just, you know, what we're doing is just the tip of the iceberg. You know, there are 7,000 rare diseases out there, you know, where we need drugs. And, you know, we may say, oh, it's a rare disease, etc. but I would just say again, if we were a patient or one of our children was one of those patients, our view would be very different. It doesn't matter then whether it's a common disease or a rare disease. Now, what I can share with you literally, and I'm, this is not meant to sort of showcase what we've... Uh, done, but literally since the start of this year, because of this approach, I mean, I think what is happening in Oxford at the moment, because of people like Richard and John Bell and Alistair Buck and everybody else, what's happening in Oxford at the moment is quite remarkable. This is not happening anywhere else. Since the start of the year, we managed to get £11 million from government to build a bioescalator to create more <coughs> biotechs in Oxford. We then got £10 million from Alzheimer's Research UK to set up a dementia institute in Oxford. We then got €42 million Euros from the European Union to uh, develop human assays, because we in academia can access human tissue, develop human assays and then test our molecules in those, all freely available. Then we got $9 million from Brazil to set up a group in Brazil to generate novel inhibitors for novel kinases, what uh, Javier was talking about 
And recently we got another nine million pounds from the Wellcome Trust to focus on genetic targets. So targets that have come out of the big genetic studies and really try and translate those. I think, I honestly think this is the only way forward. I saw, I reviewed a paper yesterday and that there was a statistic in it. Since 1950, if you look at how many drugs have been produced for every billion dollars spent, the amount of money that's spent has been going up since 1950. But the number of drugs for every billion dollars spent has been halving every nine years. So you imagine since 1950 we've been through nearly six, seven decades and each time it's halved. So our productivity is now about 1 64th of what it was in 1950, in terms of... So here we are, we're saying we're getting better at science, we understand disease, etc., etc. But actually our productivity in terms of per dollar of funding is getting less. The industry has poured money into this. It's not for lack of trying. They employ some incredibly smart people, but they just can't do it on their own. Okay, we're beginning to run out of time. Uh, I guess two questions left. Um, you and you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Matt Todd from Open Source Malaria. So I had a, um, the, the question that came about, about public funding of, of uh, drug discovery. I guess I, I just want to make a point about the a feature of the open source model, which is distinct from public funding, uh, which is that because everybody can see everything, you, you can get this possibility of competition at the same time as collaboration, because everything is freely accessible and viewable. And that creates an interesting dynamic. That there's, um, in software, there have been competitions uh, where everything is, is available to every other competitor, called the MATLAB competitions. And there, as a result, you see a kind of frenzy of activity, because contestants for prizes can see what was previously submitted and tweak it and resubmit it as their own solution. So even though it seems a little unfair that you can see what other people have suggested, it, it creates this highly, it's this intense atmosphere where you're taking what other people have done and adapting it for your own needs. And, and what that brings is the possibility of a prize where you can do a post-mortem to see who did what, which is quite interesting. So with the longitude prize, for example, that's a secret competition, so there's no, there's no difference in the way people are working. You, you're just getting to like 2019, I think, where it's going to be a shut-off and and the prize will be decided once someone hits a certain level. But I don't think there's any requirement for you to release what you're doing as you're doing it. So it's a regular prize, it doesn't change anything. But with open source, the prize is totally different because you can have a, a teamless competition, which is very interesting. And so if you couple that with a reliable funding stream, which has been proposed as, as what's known as an, an advanced market commitment, which essentially is what the Gavi guys are doing with their vaccine approach, then you have this possibility of after it's been developed, you can assess what, what happened, and therefore who should be reimbursed for what. I don't think that's being proposed by anybody yet, but it brings that possibility because everything's in the public domain. So I think that was more a, a, a comment. We'll come back to a minute. Let's take the final question. Thank you very much. Tom Fleming from Oxford Biotech. Um, I'm convinced that sharing resources and data, et cetera, is beneficial for basic science but how far down the drug discovery process do you think this pre-competitive threshold can be pushed? Um, just, let me just address that perhaps indirectly by trying to pick up something that Matt just said. And it's this question of 
I mean, I'm rephrasing it, but this, this question of transparency, um, you know, Jazz said, you know, transparency creates trust, you know, because people know that there's nothing being hidden. Um, they're more willing to, you know, participate, to engage, to collaborate. And if, if you were a cynic, um, you will argue that transparency also creates accountability and traceability. And I'm thinking that that's an important feature if you want to go back to the question of cost, right? Because you have a different system to assess who did what and how much effort and investment went into what. And that's an interesting way of re-evaluating you know, how much developing a new drug costs and who should benefit from, for instance, patents. And just to come back to the point of how far this could go, I think Chas is obviously the expert because what the Structural Genomics Consortium has been doing since 2004 is to push that threshold, that boundary, even further, right? Up to, I think, proof of clinical concept at this point. So it's beginning to enter into the space where, where the value of the candidate becomes increasingly clear, right? Which makes the pre-competitive model much more interesting because then the, the, the economic interests of the different actors become much more material and visible. But again, Charles will answer this better, but from what I've seen, from the Structural Genomics Consortium, it's surprising how far down the path you can push this model. So I would agree. I mean, I, I, I think phase, what I call phase 2A, so early clinical efficacy data in patients. So if we map out the drug discovery process and look at the attrition at each stage, the biggest attrition is phase 2A, 90%. So it makes sense that we try and get to there as quickly as possible by pooling our resources and not having 20 groups do the same thing, etc. Well, I can share with you a story. When I, when I came back to Oxford seven years ago, a few days afterwards, I was asked to review this proposal for the MRC, the Medical Research Council. This was a four million pound grant to look at an anticonvulsant in multiple sclerosis uh, as a neuroprotective. That was in 2008, January 2008. I knew that experiment had been done in GlaxoWelker in 1995, and it wasn't published. We cannot afford to carry on wasting public charitable funds, repeating stuff that's inside the walls of farm. Great. Um, this has been uh, fascinating, and, and for me it's been optimistic as well that things are changing. Just before we thank them, um, this is the second last, as I mentioned, of our series of seminars on the health challenges of the 21st century. Next week, at the same time, uh, we have the co-directors of the Vaccines for the 21st Century group in the Oxford Martin School. Uh, that's Professors Susan Lee and Christopher Tang uh, speaking, and they'll be joined by Professor Jeffrey Armand uh, and Dr. Ian Fevers. So the future of vaccines um, next Thursday. That'll end our events for this term. Uh, we will have a seminar series next term, uh, which will be on climate change uh, in the run-up to the big COP21 discussions, which will be in Paris at the end of next year. Um, and that will be at a different time. We're going to try running the seminar series uh, at 5 to 6.30 p.m. on Thursdays um, next term. To A lot of people have said they can't come at this time. Uh, because they're attending other events, so we'll 
do that and we'll inform you all. I, I'm sure you'll join me in um, thanking uh, Chaz and Javier for what's really been a fantastic pair of presentations and discussion. Thanks to you.